Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5, KPL 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, glad to be with you all today. Lots of news going on. Let's start with uh, the national story. So yesterday, Nikki Haley announced that she is running for uh, president. She dropped a campaign video announcing that launch. Today, she held an event in Charleston, South Carolina, had supporters there, uh, gave a, a really good speech, uh, you know, kind of listing out why she was doing so. And in the process, uh, we have seen a lot of, um, we, we've seen a, a lot of response from the media. And I think this is probably one of the important things to note. The media and the Democrats have gone straight to race. That is their go-to attack against Nikki Haley. They are going to attack her on the basis of race. And Nikki Haley, Haley previously identified herself on on some uh, application form as Caucasian. Uh, my colleague at Red State Bonchi wrote about this uh it was on a voter registration card, and, and my colleague Bonchi wrote, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for that. Those cards often do not provide detailed racial segmentations to check. Because of that, Indians have been known to select white instead of black or some other non-matching, uncommon descriptor. For example, in an analysis of 1990 census data, 25% of Indian Americans selected white as their ethnicity, while 5% selected black. Those differences were probably due to physical appearance, and the skin tones of Indians vary wildly. Then today you have the New York Times. Uh, Republicans try to challenge Trump in 2024, but barely say his name. Also at Politico, Haley enters the fray, a female candidate against a man known for mocking them. They're making an attack on Haley's race and the fact that she doesn't say the things that a woman of color is supposed to say because she's Republican. And they're also trying to set her up. They're trying to pit her. They're trying to get her to engage with Donald Trump. I'm being attacked on Twitter today, actually, by Mehdi Hassan of MSNBC. Uh, he posted something rather stupid on Twitter about uh, noting that Nikki Haley is saying she's the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. And he said the proud daughter of Indian immigrants uh, wants there to be more border security. Well, it actually makes sense when you consider that Nikki Haley, as the proud daughter of Indian immigrants, wants everybody to go through the same system that her parents went through. There are no shortcuts. And uh, I I mentioned that in response, and Hassan responded to me. And, of course, he's got 1.2 million followers on Twitter, so there are several that have uh, been replying and and trying to discredit the stuff I'm saying. But um, one of the things they brought up is asylum seekers. Well, Nikki Haley never in her speech or has never attacked asylum seekers. What she was making a comment about was the fact that you have a flood of illegal immigrants coming up through the southern border, and they're not just asylum seekers. These are people who, for whatever reason, have decided America is the place to be, laws be damned, and just come into the country. Everything will be fine. And that is the point she's making. Border security, border patrol is overwhelmed. There are tens of thousands of gotaways, people who have evaded capture by uh, border patrol who are now just roaming 
around on our side of the southern border because there's they, they were underwhelmed. They had no chance to get out and stop them. And this leads to other national security issues like the drug cartels having a way into the country, like fentanyl getting in, uh, coyotes trafficking humans. And I mean, there's a lot of security issues involved with that. But no, no, no. The liberals like Mehdi Hassan and others, uh, they want this to continue to be about asylum seekers, all the people who are trying to do the right thing. And they just want to be in a better place. Well, Why do they want to be in a better place, by the way? What is so wrong with Mexico that they don't want to be here? Of course, they will never admit that Mexico is a failed state. But anyway, they're making attacks because she is a woman of color is not for open borders and open immigration. She is not for critical race theory. She's not for divisive uh, rhetoric on race. She is a product of the American dream and wants others to be able to have the same opportunity at success. So the media is attacking her for that. They are also trying to get Donald Trump riled up against her. And so they put out headlines like Republicans try to challenge Trump in 2024, but barely say his name. Keep in mind that we saw in 2016 when you try to engage with Donald Trump at his level, at the very game Trump plays. You get mud all over you. Donald Trump comes. Donald Trump plays by the rules of his own game better than anybody else can. We learned that in 2016. And these candidates have learned that they're not going to engage with Donald Trump that way. They're going to talk about themselves, talk about what they want to do, and they're going to basically ignore Trump. But the media wants them to engage with Trump because they want that knockout fight. Haley enters the fray of female candidate against a man known for mocking them. They want her to go after Trump and, and his alleged misogyny and all this. And she's not going to do it. Here's what's happening. The Democrats and the media, they want to dictate the terms of Nikki Haley's candidacy. And she, along with Tim Scott, along with Ron DeSantis, along with Mike Pence, along with Mike Pompeo and all these others, they realize or they should realize they're not going to win if they let Donald Trump or the media dictate the terms of their candidacy. What they want to do instead is dictate their own terms, which they absolutely should. I've told you guys again and again, we need a Nikki Haley in this race. We need a Tim Scott. You may not want them to win. You may not think they have a chance to win, but the conversations they bring to the table, I think are worth hearing. And who knows? It may open one of them up to a, fine spot as a vice presidential candidate. But the these are not honest reporters. These are not objective reporters. They have an agenda. Their agenda is to sow dissension among Republicans and get them to fight each other because when it comes down to it, the Democrats are just as dysfunctional. They just get a lot more cover from the media. The fact of the matter is, if there was a Democratic equivalent of Donald Trump, nobody would be saying these kinds of things about a Democratic Nikki Haley against a Democratic Donald Trump. They simply would not. They would cover for the Democratic Party and try to focus on whoever the most recent Republican is and how they're the most extreme thing to ever happen. But, oh, wait, here comes a more extreme one. They want to paint all of the Republicans in this race as ultra-MAGA extremists, all of whom are devoted to Trump and his way of governance. Every candidate, meanwhile, has a different story to tell, and they are stories worth telling. But they want to dictate the terms of this campaign, and no Republican should let them. No Republican at any point should say any, should allow anything that the media says 
be part of how they run their campaign. They shouldn't. And here's the thing. Some of them are going to. Some of them are going to let what the Democrats say. Some of them are going, and they're going to be basically wiped out campaign. And they're going to be basically wiped out by that. And it's a shame. It really is a shame that some of them are going to uh, give way to that. They're going to let other people dictate how to run their campaigns. I wish they wouldn't. I really wish they wouldn't, but they are. And hopefully we get to a point where that's not going to be the case. All right. 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. I'm going to go ahead and take this break. When we come back, your calls, your comments on the KPL app chat and more of the news of the day. Some big news happening all around us. Going to get into those stories here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Uh, speaking of announcing candidacies, I think we might get another gubernatorial announcement soon. Uh, earlier today, a press release went out. Uh, Sean Wilson, Dr. Sean Wilson, who is the secretary of the Department of Transportation Development, announced his retirement from DOTD. So he's been with the department, I think, around 16 years. And he's one of he's one of, if not the longest serving secretary of DOTD. He's been there. More than seven years. He's pretty much been there since Edwards got in. He's been the, the head of DOTD since then. And he has announced his retirement. Now, I, now there's been a lot of talk, a lot of conversation about whether or not Wilson's going to run. If he's retiring ahead, uh, this far ahead of, of uh, the election, it's probably a sign he's about to announce and be ready to run full time. And, and that, I think, is a pretty big sign that we're going to get uh, Wilson as the Democrat in the race. Uh, as I mentioned, Katie Bernhardt has officially said she's out. She's not doing it. She got a lot of blowback for that ad. Wilson is going to be in. Wilson, you know, unlike John Bell Edwards, Wilson does. Uh, he's got a lot more bipartisan appeal, I think. Um, and, and, you know, you, you've listened to Moon. In fact, Moon and I were, were talking about it. Um, you know, Moon very much convinced uh, Wilson's going to end up being another super woke Democrat who's going to come in and bring woke ideology into the state. But Wilson doesn't give that off publicly. And so I think because he's going to be a black candidate, if he decides to run again, I think this resignation, this retirement from DOTD at this point, rather than sitting, waiting it out until Edwards is out of office, I think it's a pretty clear sign that he's about to launch his campaign uh, Wilson is uh, he he's well liked, well respected across the state, including here from from this area. He's going to be able to pull some of those votes in. Now, is he going to get a lot of Republican voters in Lafayette, Louisiana? Probably not. Pretty conservative part of the state. Uh, Republicans are pretty much going to stick with their guys. Probably Jeff Landry, mostly from this area. But you never know. And. Wilson has uh, bipartisan appeal. I mean, there, there's just a lot of people I've heard behind the scenes who are like, yeah, I mean, he's he's going to be a guy who can who can get votes across the aisle, but he's also going to be a black candidate. And the Democratic Party's voter base is 66 percent African-American. 
that is a pretty big deal, especially when, as I've mentioned before, black voters in the state of Louisiana are kind of tired of the old white guys running the party when they haven't done anything for black voters in the state. They're going to look to Wilson as a chance to change that, and that will get them out to vote come come November. One of the big, big things here is that the Democratic Party, kind of the same as at the national level, but here in, in Louisiana, they don't have much of a bench. They don't. If if Wilson wasn't going to run, who was? Well, uh, Gary Chambers got screwed by his own party, and he's very bitter. He'll run a very angry campaign if he were to run. Luke Mixon had all the charisma of carpet, and not any like not like a, a fun one, like a tie dye or a shag carpet, just some generic uh, mass produced uh, home, or some generic beige carpet you find on the floor of a master bedroom. Uh, who else is there for the Democrats? Edwards can't run again. You have Sean Wilson. He's probably their best bet. Katie Bernhardt, like, completely uh, ruined her credibility, I think, and, and ruined kind of her hold on the party with that ad trying to do an in run around a campaign announcement by introducing herself through a pack before launching her own campaign. She got a lot of blowback for that. Democratic Party leadership. And Democratic Party candidates are just really in short supply in the state of Louisiana. And so they don't have as much of an opportunity to get out and run. So you got to find somebody who's been within the system, who has appeal across both parties, like Sean Wilson. And that's how you kind of get in. And it helps, again, that he is going to be the black candidate in the race, it looks like. That helps give you a big advantage among Democratic voters. 66% of the Democratic Party black voter, 33% statewide. That's a pretty big deal if you can get them around Sean Wilson, a good chunk of the, that gets you a good chunk of the way into a runoff. And if the Republicans don't screw it, or if the Republicans end up screwing it up like they are so capable of doing, then you're, you could look at Sean Wilson being the next governor of Louisiana. But, Going back to earlier conversations, it looks like the Louisiana Republican Party is starting to make some of the necessary changes. I know that people have criticized them for the early choice of Jeff Landry when not even every candidate had declared that they were running yet. But by doing so, they are able to go ahead and get money on the ground for Jeff Landry. Jeff Landry has a lot of money. He's got a big war chest on his own. Yes, you've got Schroeder, and yes, you've got Nelson and Hewitt and these others who are wanting to run. Possibly Garrett Graves. I I still don't see that one, though. Uh, But you have all these Republican candidates who are in, but you have Jeff Landry with the money and with the momentum. If it comes down to Jeff Landry and Sean Wilson, I think it's an interesting race. I think it'll be closer than probably some people on the right expect. But the advantage does go to Jeff Landry in that case. All of that said, Republicans, if you want to win, after dropping two embarrassing ones to the Democrats already, Republicans need to get their head in the game. I'm not sure if they're capable of it, to be honest. I mean, I'm not a registered Republican anymore. I've 
I, I like observing more. I vote in line with the Republican Party most of the time, 99% of the time. But they are capable of messing this up, and I really think that is possible if they aren't careful. Sean Wilson could be a bigger threat than a lot of Republicans are thinking. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we've got a lot more of the news of the day to talk about. Is Joe Biden's administration pricing us out of buying new cars? There's a story in Bloomberg today that kind of suggests that and more here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. So... One of the things that is undoubtedly going to become a big part of the campaign in 2024 is still going to be the economy. And I think that we're looking at a pretty significant pricing out of the market. The middle class is being priced out of the market in a lot of areas. But Bloomberg is noting today that one of those areas is new cars. In a piece titled, New Cars Are Only for the Rich Now as Automakers Rake in Profits. Here's what they write. With pandemic-era chip shortages fading, manufacturers are keeping inventories low and prices high. The shift to EVs, electric vehicles, will make things worse. A shiny new car in the driveway has always been the emblem of middle-class prosperity for generations. But for the typical American family, it's now a distant dream. The average monthly payment for a new car has soared to a record $777, nearly double from late 2019, according to Kelly Blue Book owner Cox Automotive. That's almost a sixth of the median after-tax income for U.S. households. Even used models have climbed to 544 a month on average. Keep in mind yesterday's inflation report. Used cars are down about 11%, but that's still $544 a month on average. The sticker shock extends well beyond the United States, where inflation is a thorny political issue for President Biden as the 2024 election looms. In Europe, prices are flirting with records. Used car prices soared in Japan last year and in China. A rapid push to electric vehicles means consumers will have to pay more in some cities. At the root of the problem is automakers' new mantra, keep inventory lean and price tags fat. Three years after the pandemic triggered a global shortage of semiconductor chips and crippled car manufacturing, Ford, General Motors, and their overseas rivals are notching big profits. And because electric vehicles cost about 25% more than the average car, the shift to plug-ins is about to make the affordability crisis even worse. Add soaring interest rates to the mix, and new cars are fast becoming the domain of the rich. The Democrats, because of their policies in attacking oil and attacking uh, gas-powered vehicles, the Democrats are pricing the middle class out of car ownership, particularly new car ownership. It shouldn't be a partisan issue, but it is. They have embraced this climate extremism. They have embraced this anti-oil, anti-gas mentality. And they really and truly believe, as Biden said in the State of the Union address the other night, that we're not going to we're, we're going to need oil and gas for 10 more years, as if suddenly 10 years from now, it's just going to stop. 
and it's not. But they want to force the industry to go that way, even though the economy and the literal lay of the land, when you think about the petroleum-based products like tires and asphalt are concerned, the literal lay of the land is not going to be ready for that in, in economic and industrial shift. And it's not just cars. There's a lot of things going on right now. I, you know, I gave you the numbers yesterday. Let me try to pull those numbers back up real quick because it, it's so, so outstanding. Fuel oil over the last year up 27.7%. Gas utilities up 26.7%. Transportation up 14.6%. Electricity, 11.9%. Food at home, 11.3%. Food away from home, 8.2%. Shelter, 7.9%. New cars, up 5.8%. Gasoline, up 1.5%. Used cars have gone down, but not nearly enough to keep it competitive. The state of the economy right now, Biden is out there bragging that the Biden economic plan is working and that Republicans' plans will negatively impact the middle class. Well, the ne- the middle class is already being negatively impacted, and Biden and his team don't want to admit that. They want to say, well, inflation is ticking down, but we're still paying much higher costs than we were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, back into the years when Donald Trump was president, when Republicans were in charge. People are going to remember that. That is going to become a key issue in 2024. Ultimately, ultimately, you're looking at an economy where the middle class isn't moving up. They're moving down. The rich are becoming richer and the middle class are joining the lower class. The middle class are joining poor Americans. They are being priced out of the economic lifestyle of the rich. And those progressive elitists, the largely rich white folks from cities who want to determine the policy that's best for all of us, they're the ones who can afford these things. They're the ones who can go out and on a whim buy an electric vehicle. They're the ones who can go out on a whim and may and say, you know, we're going to buy this induction stove. We're going to get rid of the gas stove. We're going to transition to uh, all plant food. We're going to we're going to transition away from meat. They can afford that. The rest of us can't. Their attack on the economy to try to shape the economy to try to shape the U.S. economy and industry and social landscape into their idea of a utopia is pricing the average American out of a simple, standard existence that they've always lived. They are actively attacking the daily comforts, the daily luxuries, and the daily necessities of Americans trying to force some environmental and social change that most Americans reject the finer details of. There is a reason. There is a reason that the Democrats are so terrified about 2024. They have more vulnerable seats in the Senate than they had in 2022. They have a president 
whose approval numbers aren't great and whose policies aren't really gaining traction. Americans aren't um, not gaining traction. Americans aren't buying into the hype of the Biden administration and its accomplishments. Americans aren't feeling it because the Biden administration has worked so hard to price Americans out of what they are used to and trying to force them into something they don't want. Forcing the environmental and social change is only going to cause problems to become worse for Americans and will make problems worse for the Biden administration. All right, 232-1542. Let's take our last break of the day when we come back. Story I wanted to get to yesterday, but you guys had a lot of calls. wanted to take those. There's some new reporting out about the mental health challenges for teens, particularly young girls. And I want to talk about that when we come back here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. I want to jump to this story that I, I meant to do yesterday, but we were having a great conversation on the 2024 primaries, and I, I wanted to keep that going. Results from the CDC's 2021 Youth Risk Behavior Survey show startling trends. Nearly three in five teen girls say they felt persistently sad or hopeless. That's the highest rate in a decade. And 30% say they have seriously considered dying by suicide, a percentage that's risen by nearly 60% over the last 10 years. The survey, which has been conducted every other year for three decades, includes responses from over 17,000 U.S. high school students. Overall, more than 40% of boys and girls said that they felt so sad or hopeless within the past year that they were unable to do their regular activities, such as schoolwork or sports, for at least two weeks. When researchers looked at gender differences, girls were far more likely to report such feelings than boys. At least 52% of teenagers who identified as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or questioning said they struggled with mental health. LGBTQ kids question uh, they uh, experience much more interpersonal stress from schools, from peers, and from home, unfortunately, Julie Creel, a licensed psychologist and director for the Suicide Prevention and Exposure Lab, told NBC News. The CDC survey found that more than one in five such youth, 22%, had attempted suicide in the past year. Now, again, this was a survey taken in 2021, so we're talking about 2020 and 2021. That past year, that was at the height of COVID. What was happening then? Say it with me, everybody. Isolation. We had isolated our kids from their social environments. And yes, LGBTQ kids do have a lot more pressure in social situations at school, but the isolation at home is 10 times worse, if not more. They don't have those social interactions. They don't have their regular group of friends that they see day in and day out, those who are most understanding of them and who love them and who care for them and who talk to them and remain their friends at school. But not just LGBTQ kids, all kids across the board with girls more likely to feel these negative thoughts than boys. As I said last week, 
human beings are a social species. Always have been, always will be. It's, it's hardwired into our DNA. We are a communal social species. And the fact of the matter is, when you go through a year or more of isolation due to the pandemic and the response to the pandemic, what you have is a mental health crisis that is ready to absolutely explode. And that's what we're seeing now. We are now seeing because and you look at the stories, look at the stories from all around the country, increase in mental health problems, suicides, uh, violent activities, shootings, gang activity, drug use, all of these negative stories. They can be traced back to this forced isolation from the pandemic. That wasn't the only thing. That was just the culmination of years of social isolation and us really tricking ourselves into thinking that it's absolutely okay. And in this time of isolation, what happened? Kids were on computer screens, on their phone screens. They were doing classwork remotely. They were scrolling through TikTok. They were scrolling through Instagram. They were scrolling through Snapchat and Facebook and all the other social media apps, Facebook less than some of the others. TikTok and Instagram in particular. In TikTok, you have influencers who post these little videos, and a lot of them are out there trying to convince kids that they are something they may not actually be, that they were born wrong, that they were born a different gender than what they actually biologically appear to be. And you have so many people out there trying to normalize that feeling. And you go through there and you go through Instagram where girls are inundated with this belief this of what natural beauty actually is. And it's unattainable for a lot of these girls. And they spiral into depression and they spiral into these thoughts of suicide and, and self-harm and all of these terrible things because they just can't keep up with what society is throwing at them. It is tragic what we are putting our kids through. And social media is a big part of that. Now, I am an admitted social media junkie. I use it a lot. I work in, in media. I work in political punditry and writing. I have to use it to promote the stuff I, I write. But also, I use it to do things like share stupid memes on Facebook. I keep in touch with friends and family. That's how I use it. I don't allow the algorithm to take me to things I don't care about or, or new things to me. I have my specific sets of likes and dislikes, and I make sure that the algorithm doesn't get any funny ideas. But I'm an adult. I know how social media works. I know what it is I'm looking for and the content I want. A lot of kids who are getting introduced to social media don't, and they get sucked into these rabbit holes. And they never really return from them. They get stuck in them. And right now, what you're seeing is the culmination of social isolation and these social media rabbit holes that have dragged kids down. We can say that the pandemic is what's causing our kids to not perform well in schools, but the fact of the matter is we've, we've always been trending downward. As education has fundamentally changed, we have been, uh, we have been forcing our kids to become addicted to screens. Technology in the classroom is great, but it also has some drawbacks. Like you spend your time with your nose buried in a computer or an iPad screen or your phone, 
instead of conversing with one another and conversing with the teacher. The best teachers still have a lot of group work, a lot of group discussion, a lot of questioning. What we're suffering from right now is a social illness, and it has a lot of symptoms. Not all the symptoms are the same for every kid, but we're suffering from social disease, social isolation, social networking, social decay and rot. And the symptoms of this range far and wide, but at the end of the day, what it's causing is a tremendous amount of mental health problems for our students. And there's no easy fix because now we're in 2023. We've had, since the pandemic, three years, three years now, where we have allowed this to continue to decline. We are three years into making this situation worse. It will take years to reverse what we've done to our kids, and some of them will grow up without it having been worked out. Our best hope is to get them the help they need and also to make sure we don't do this again to our kids. That we don't let our kids get buried in algorithms. We don't let our kids get buried under screens. That we make sure to enforce social communication, we in face-to-face interaction, being together in a group, going out and seeing friends, going out and hanging out, doing these fun activities, something that gets them away from screens and away from their isolation that we impose on them and that they impose on ourselves, on themselves. That's the only way we can fix this social disease that's spreading. And I hope we can do it before it's too late because the numbers that we're seeing now are not good. You guys have a great day. Be careful out there. There's supposed to be some rain that's rolling through today and tomorrow. Drive safe. I'm going to talk to you again real soon. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Email Joe at RedState.com. Sign up for the podcast and my daily writings, JoeCunninghamShow.substack.com. Shannon is off sides with Gary Cruz next. I'll be back in 23 hours, and I will talk to you guys then right here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.